grab uh, grab a Bible, turn to Matthew uh, chapter ten. We have been we have been in this series called uh, Red Ink, uh, and we're looking at uh, quite literally the, the some of the red ink in the New Testament, uh, the very words of Jesus. And I, I wanted to do this series uh, because a lot of people have misconceptions about who Jesus is. They 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 really have a kind of a false image of who he is and. Uh, what he came to do, and, and, and certainly what, what he said. And so, uh, for example, there are a lot of people that think that uh, Jesus was just a good religious teacher, that he dressed like a hippie from the 60s, that he, um, you know, just, just was unflappable and, and just kind of easygoing, that he uh, just went everywhere. He went to spread love and groovy vibes everywhere he went. You know, that's, that's kind of the um, the whole picture of that. And so the thing that we don't often see is that um, that's really not true. That's not really uh, what the, the picture that we have of Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, what I would submit to you today is that Jesus was a very polarizing figure. Uh, there was no middle ground with him. Uh, you either loved him or you hated him. And, uh, you know, that's really what polarizing means. It's very similar to Donald Trump, right? When you see a picture of Donald Trump, uh, you either love him or not so much, right? Uh, Certainly Bernie Sanders, uh, certainly his ideas, you either love his ideas or not so much. Those guys are polarizing people. What we often fail to see is Jesus was no different than that. He was no different than that. You, uh, you, when you interacted with him, he was always challenging you to decide, make a decision. And there was no middle of the road with him. And people tried, but he wouldn't let them. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at uh, Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at an astonishing claim of Jesus today. Very astonishing. I think it's pretty much on the same level as what we looked at last week. Uh, in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. What he's about to say is absolutely astonishing. And again, it's another one of those examples that you and I just can't sit back and play the middle, you know, the middle. We can't play center field. We've got to decide one way or the other. We're, we're all in or we're, or we're out because, uh, because that is... Uh, what Jesus forces us to do. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for what we're going to read today. Now, this passage, we're going to read verses 34 through 39, but the entire, really the entire chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples in mission. So he is calling them and challenging them to go beyond themselves. He's sending them out. And what he tells them is really interesting because he tells them when you guys start in ministry, when you start proclaiming and ministering and healing and all of that, you're going to get a lot of different reactions from the crowds. And Jesus tells them some some people are going to accept you and some people are going to reject you. Uh, Some people are going to love you and some people are going to hate you. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, some people are going to try to kill you as well. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues. They're going to flog you. And, and don't worry about it. Don't worry if somebody tries to kill the body. Don't, don't worry about that. And I'm sure the disciples were kind of standing around just like, well, I didn't know I was signing up for this. I mean, like we thought this was, 
you know, there was nothing but good things. They're going to try to kill us? I mean, are you serious? And Jesus is saying that's exactly right. And I think what he's talking about, church, and what I think what we need to see is there is, you know, there is a commitment required in following Jesus. That there's a cost involved. And that's what, that's what he's highlighting throughout this chapter. And, and, uh, and so he is, he's, he is literally unpacking that for us. So let's, um, let's just jump right in. I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, let's stand together for the, the reading of the word. We're going to start at verse 34. Very interesting passage through 39. Jesus says this, as Matthew records, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Now, as we, as we really look at this passage, I, I think we need to, first of all, talk about what he's not saying. And he is not calling for He's not calling for violence. He's not inciting a riot here. And, and he's not calling for uh, armed conflict when he says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. That's not what he's saying. And some of you kind of push back and say, well, well how do you know that? Well, I, what, I've, what I always like to share with you is this. When you're, when you're trying to understand scripture, you always use other scripture to help you understand whatever specific passage you're trying to interpret and understand. And so when I look at verses 34 through 39, I ask the question, what's the point that Jesus is making here? And the point is clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So he's not saying, you know, go grab your swords and, you know, get your guns and come follow me. We're going to go take, you know, a hill for, you know, for me, whatever. He's not, he's not saying that. Uh, he's saying something else. Now, now, I also know when I look at Luke's account of the Matthew passage, when I, look at, when I look at how Luke writes what Jesus says, that Matthew, what we just read, Luke uses the word division instead of sword. So in other words, Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but division. And I think that's a huge clue. Because I think Luke's, Luke is you know, helping us to understand what that passage means. The other thing that I would say is this. There's an incident in Scripture uh, where, the, where uh, this mob of people go and they arrest Jesus in Gethsemane uh, the night before he's crucified and they're armed with swords and clubs and everything. There are about a hundred of those guys, soldiers and um, mercenaries, if you will. And, um, and so they're arresting Jesus and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Put your sword down. Basically saying, I didn't come for that. You know, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then Jesus heals the servant of the high priest's ear. Like right there. The high priest that's arresting Jesus. Jesus heals his servant just like that. Now, that says a lot about who Jesus is and, and really what he came to do. And so I think 
what, when Jesus is saying that I've come not to bring peace, but division or a sword, what he's saying is this, my message is going to divide people. It is going to separate people into groups. I think that's exactly what he's saying. He is, he is absolutely preparing us for how people are going for how people are going to uh, receive that message and the impact that that's going to have. Jesus is saying, my message is going to divide even families. The most sacred relationships of life, when my message comes down, it's going to separate people into groups. Even the most um, sacred relationships of life. Some of you understand that firsthand. Because when you made the decision to follow Jesus, it had a ripple effect in the relationships in your family. Some people loved you and some people rejected you, even within your family. So you know exactly what he's saying. Now, I think the question then becomes, why is the message, why does the message of Jesus cause so much division? Why are there so many different reactions to Jesus' message? And I think the answer is this, because the claims of Jesus were so clear and absolute, you can't be ambivalent about them. You can't just, oh, that's nice, you know, and sit on the fence. You can't just choose the middle way. You can't be ambivalent about it. You've got you to make a decision. And I think that there are a lot of people in church, I, I think there are perhaps a lot of people in this room, we just really want to go halfway with God and go the other half with the world. And the truth is some of us are trying to ride the fence. And what Jesus is saying is following Jesus means you can't ride the fence. I mean, you can try, but it's not going to work. And it just makes you miserable. And so there's something in my nature, there's something in your nature that, that kind of gravitates towards the middle ground. I want one foot with God just to get the blessing of God, but I want to hedge my bets and have another foot with the world so that I can enjoy the pleasures of the world. And what happens is you're not happy at church and you're not happy at a bar either. You're miserable in both places. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. You've got to make a decision. And this is not a new message. Uh, this message has been around since the beginning of time. In the Old Testament, there's a story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And this is in the time of ancient Israel. And there was a, there was a, a famine in the land. And what people were doing in Israel is they would worship God. They would worship Yahweh. But they would also worship Baal. And Baal was the Canaanite God who made it rain. And he brought fertility to your, to your livestock which affected your bottom line. You guys know what I'm saying? And so the people back then really struggled with idolatry. And you could, you could kind of see why it would be tempting. Am I going to trust God? Or am I going to offer a few sacrifices to Baal so I can get it to rain on my crops so that I can, I can feed my family? It was a constant, constant tension in the Old Testament. And, and God called Elijah to, to do an incredible miracle on Mount Carmel, he calls a huge group of people up. There are 450 prophets of Baal up there. And Elijah says to them, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long, he, the, the word that he uses is the word limp. How long are you going to limp you know, between two different opinions and just go back and forth and back and forth trying to get the best of both worlds? How long are you going to do that? And Elijah says, look, if God is God, then worship him. 
If Baal is God, then worship him. But just make a decision and quit trying to play center field in your relationship with God. And I think a lot of Christians try to do this today. And we think in our minds, well, you know, I'm good. I I prayed a prayer at camp. I prayed a prayer at VBS. I'm good. I go to church once every six weeks. I'm good. You know, I'm good. I can go do whatever I want now because I, you know, I've got my salvation. Got God on my side. I'm just going to go live however I want to live. And Jesus says, look, following Jesus is, is, following me is, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. Just praying a prayer. And so what Jesus is wanting us to see in Matthew 10 is, is basically, it, it really is just Christianity 101. That, that is what it, this is basic Christian discipleship. If you're going to follow me, there are three commitments that you need to make. And we just need to quit him hauling around about this. And what Jesus does is he, he just calls out these commitments. Just as clear as day. And, and basically what he says, this is kind of how I word it, but, but I think the three commitments are the, the exclusivity of Christ, that we love Jesus over all things. We love him before all things. And, and then not only the exclusivity of Jesus, but, but the priority of Jesus, that Jesus is our priority. We seek first the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And that we understand the reality of the cost of following Jesus. So we're going to look at the exclusivity, the priority, and then the reality of the cross. So let's jump in and look at the very first one, the exclusivity. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he says this, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, what's he trying to say? He's trying to say that when my message My message divides the most sacred relationships of life. The relationships you think would be strong enough to withstand it? No. And and here what Jesus is doing is he's he's not predicting that there might be conflict. He's saying, I will cause conflict in your family. What he's saying is this, that when the the reality of the rule and the reign of God intersects with the rule of a family and we know what those rules are of a family, right? You, you've experienced them at Thanksgiving and all of that. Um, when those two intersect, sparks are going to fly. And what Jesus is saying is you just need to be aware of that. That that's part of the cost of following me. It's, the re, it's, it's, just, it's just real life discipleship, following Jesus. Look at verse 37 because here you double, he doubles down on it. Look at this. Look at what he says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He says, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying he is making a case for the exclusivity of the relationship of love that we have with Jesus. Do you see that? I mean, I mean, just think this. This is not Jesus a good moral teacher here. He's not saying, oh, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and judge not and love your neighbor. I mean, he, is, he does say that. But this is what he's really saying. He doesn't say love God and obey God. He says love and obey me. That is what's fascinating. That's what's fascinating. Now, this makes Jesus different from every other religious leader. I mean, do you guys realize this? Now, you can think of me in some ways. I'm, a, I'm your religious leader, all right? So, so think of me that way. 
You know, if I stood up here and said, Stones, I want you to love me more than anybody else in the world. I want you all to be committed to me more than anybody else in the world. I want, I want you to give me your undivided loyalty and allegiance above all people and everything. Now, if you heard me say that on a Sunday morning or anybody else in this church say it on a Sunday morning or any other time, do you know what you need to do? You need to quietly just slip out of your seat and slip out the back, right? You know why? Because I'm not worthy of that. There's only one who is, and his name is Jesus. And you know what's fascinating? And I do this all the time, but I want you to see it, church. Buddha never makes that claim. Muhammad in the Quran never makes that claim. No other religious leader makes that claim. Jesus did. And so he's forcing us to make a decision, to decide. It's fascinating to me that, that so many great Christian leaders throughout the history of the church, you know, deflected attention away from themselves and pointed it to Christ and the cross. You know that? They're not, claim, they're not asking people to love them. They're saying, love the one who's worthy of your love, Jesus. And you see it in the Apostle Paul. Paul said, Paul said, I, I've got so many things that I could be, you know, that I could be proud of in my life. So many qualifications, so many accolades and achievements. You know, I'm like, you know, top one in my religion class. And, you know, I'm part of the spiritual elite family in the tribe of Israel. You know, he lists this big long list of things and you know what he says church he says I consider all of that stuff and he lists like eight things all of that stuff dog poo compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus isn't that interesting like don't look to me he says look to Christ and uh he uses the word dog poo literally in the Greek that's what it is uh you can look it up and smell it later if you want so uh, and it's fascinating too, John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, his ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. You know what he said? We saw Jesus, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. See, when you meet the Savior, you know how you know when you meet the Savior? That's your prayer. Oh God, increase, increase in me and let me decrease. That's how you know you've met the Savior. Um, it's interesting, Peter was crucified himself uh, for his proclamation of the gospel. And they started to crucify him. And he said, wait a minute, time out. Can I make one request? Can you crucify me upside down? He said, because I'm not worthy to be crucified like the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm just not worthy of that. So just turn me upside down and have your way. And they did. Now, what we see Jesus doing is talking a lot about himself saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, I have the authority to forgive sins. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You know, at the end of time, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus is the one saying that stuff. And so either Jesus is the worst cult leader on the face of the planet or, or he's something different from every other religious figure and that is really what he is. And that is that he is worthy of our faith, worthy of our devotion. Does that make sense, church? This is a claim of exclusivity no one else makes. And uh, it's in the context of what it really means to follow him. This is a staggering claim. You are gonna love 
him more than anyone else or you're not worthy of him. That is, that's fascinating. Now, let's just apply it. Can we just get right to it? And um, let me just ask you a couple questions. Do, do you love your family more than Jesus? I mean, if you had to choose between your family or Jesus, which one would you go with? Are you training your children to love Jesus above all things, before all things, above anything else or anyone else? Are you training your children to do that? Because as parents, we really should be guiding and shaping our kids' loyalty and our kids' priorities. How about this one? Does your, does your family calendar, is your family calendar centered around Jesus or is it centered around your kids? Ooh, now I'm meddling now, right? Uh, we live in a culture that worships sports. And I'm afraid uh, that our calendars are centered around something other than Jesus. I, I, I'm really concerned about that. There's a, a book called Game On. Uh, it's, it's by a guy named Tom Ferry. And uh, the subtitle of the book is The All-American Race to Make Champions of Our Children. And what he does is he warns parents about make, putting excessive pressure on your kids to succeed and excel and be the best. And I want to just share a quote from the book. This is what he says. He says, there are 12-year-olds driving race cars. 11-year-olds are turning pro in skateboarding. Nine-year-olds hire professional coaches. Eight-year-olds play 75 baseball games a year. Seven-year-olds vie for powerlifting medals. Six-year-olds have personal trainers. Five-year-olds play soccer year-round. Four-year-old tumblers compete at the AAU Junior Olympics. Three-year-olds enter their third year of swimming lessons. Two-year-olds have custom golf clubs just for kicks to get a sense of where all this may be headed. I flew to Australia with a cheek swab from my one-year-old son, Kellen, to get his DNA tested by a company who uses genetic analysis to recommend specific sports for my kids. Now, you know what that is? idolatry and uh, I'm not saying it's wrong to let your kids be involved in sports but but teaching them that their identity is what they achieve and what they earn um, that's a problem and so I think the question is this do we want our kids to be all state or do we want them to be all in for Jesus that's really the question you know I was talking to a, a Christian father that I really respect and his kids are grown and gone and and he was telling me, you know, uh, when his kids were young, um, his son was a great athlete, uh, middle school, uh, all state in high school, and went on to college and, and played uh, college athletics as well. And he said the, the problem was, is in, you know, those middle school and high school years, uh, we were just so busy doing sports. And uh, he didn't have time to go to church. And now 10 years out of college, he's not in sports and he's not in church. And the thing that he said to me is he said, all of those accolades, all of those awards, all the attention really don't matter right now. They really don't matter. And so following Jesus just simply means we recognize the exclusive claims that he has on us as our creator, as our redeemer, and as our savior. And we worship him in return, giving him first place above all other relationships. That's the exclusive claim that Jesus is talking about. But there's also a claim of priority 
for Jesus. There's a commitment to his priority that he says. Look with me at verse 8 or verse 38. Jesus says this, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement. We, you know, his original hearers would have heard that in a much different way than you're hearing it right now. It's kind of a remote metaphor for us. You know, the cross. And that's what it is. He's using the cross as a metaphor, just like he's using sword as a metaphor. And I think it's kind of remote for us. But I'll tell you, back in Jesus' day, they knew exactly what he was talking about when he said, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Because every day, church, the Romans crucified people. They crucified thousands of people. And it was very common. Or every week they, they, crucified, they, they crucified people. And so just in your normal everyday routine, you know that there was something going on in the city. Uh, somebody was getting crucified. And what the Romans did is they made the person carry their, the crossbar up to the place where they would execute them. And so if you ever saw a guy carrying a crossbar following five or six Roman soldiers, you knew where he was going. And you knew he wasn't coming back. You knew that that man was walking dead. He wasn't, he wasn't going to live through what they were going to do. And so when Jesus says, you got to take up your cross and follow me, they knew exactly what he was talking about. I think a little bit, a little bit better than, than we do. It, it really means this. What Jesus is saying is when we follow Jesus, it is a voluntary dying to self. It is a laying down of our selfishness. That's what it is. And Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you got to lay it down, take up your cross, and follow me and come after me. That, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And so, you know, as we kind of think about this just practically, I think one way to apply this is just learning how to accept God's plan for your life. You know, taking up your cross is, I mean, that's a burden. It's hard. It's painful. Uh, it's difficult. And so you just accept the part of life that is hard and difficult right now. And you just pick it up and you start following Jesus until God gives you a chance to lay it down. That's what he's talking about. It's those things in your life and in my life that we can't control, that we, that we can't, um, you know, we don't have control, we can't change them. I mean, you, you know, you change the things you can, right? You control the things that you can, but those things in your life that you just can't do anything about, like, you know, when you were born or how you're gonna die or what other people do to you or what other people say to you, however they treat you, you really can't control those things. So you know what you gotta do? You gotta pick up your cross. You gotta embrace those things and let's follow Jesus. That's what, that's what it is. And I think that's what he's talking about. That's at the heart of what it means to, to follow him. I think that's when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here saying, I'm following you and I accept your will for my life. And there's just so many areas of life that we, we don't have control over. You know, I know that some of you are struggling with infertility. There, Man, that is hard. Um, you've gotten a cancer diagnosis. You're dealing with the pain of a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. There's a financial downturn. You hate your job. 
And what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, pick up your cross and come after me. That, that's, that's, that is what he's saying. And, um, you know, it's fascinating when we get these painful seasons in our life. We experience circumstances that we can't control and can't change. It's hard. I think one of the hardest things about it is, is it just seems like God is so silent. You guys know what I'm saying? It's like you cry out to God like, God, why? You know, and it's just crickets. And, um, and we don't realize that that's part of it. And we don't realize that that's part of the test. I, I, you know, maybe you remember when you're in elementary school, your elementary school teacher would give you a test. And what, he, what would he or she do as a teacher? What would they do? They, they'd sit very quietly at the front of the room while you take the test. And you weren't really allowed to talk to your teacher during the test. And uh, I think what's true in the elementary classroom is often true in life. God allows tests to come to us to see if we'll trust in him. But often the teacher is silent, is he not? And so you don't always get the answer, why is this happening to me? Why, what God, why did you allow this to happen? Uh, we, we don't always get to have that kind of understanding. But here's the thing I'll tell you. You know, God, he doesn't owe you an explanation. And explanations don't always bring comfort anyway. What brings comfort is the fact that Jesus had to pick up his cross. And so he's not, you know, we're not doing anything that he hasn't done. And so I think that what it means to take up your cross is you just accept God's plan for your life the where it is. And you say, God, I'm going to allow you to grow me. I'm going to allow you to change me. I, I know Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. And I am trusting in that today. You carried the cross for me, and I'm going to carry this cross as I follow you. I think also taking up your cross means just simply surrendering to God's control. And this is really that whole obedience question. And, and, uh, and I think we, we're really faced with this every day, church. This is just real Christianity, real life every day. You have to get up in the morning, and you got to make a decision. Am I following God's agenda, or am I following mine? And I have to do it every day as a pastor, as a Christian. I've got three Bible degrees, and I have to do it every single day. I mean, I go to bed. I know exactly who I am when I go to bed. But when I wake up in the morning, I have no idea who I am anymore. So you know what I have to do? I have to get on my knees, and I say, God, this day belongs to you, and I belong to you, and I am resurrendering my life to you today. You're calling the shots. I'm going after your agenda. And I don't know, it may be painful, it may be hard, it may be disappointing. That's okay, as long as I have you. The gospel says you are enough. You're enough for me. And we have to make that decision every day, church. That is just discipleship. And so it's funny because people, people say to me, well, you know, God really wants us to be happy, doesn't he? And they use that as, as an excuse to you know, excuse some sin in their life because they know there's some Bible verses about it and they know they shouldn't be doing it. Uh, but they just say, but God wants me to be happy. Church, I'll just lay it on to you. Here, here you go. You'll never be happy until you're surrendered to God's control. That's the truth. The reason why there is so much stress and turmoil in your life is because you're at war with God. You won't accept his plan and surrender to his control. So you're, you're trying to fight a war. You can't win. And, and I think that's 
what Jesus wants us to see, that there is a, there is a priority in following him, and that, and that priority has to be committed to day in and day out, minute in, minute out. And so, but here's, there's some good news with this. Let me, let me, look at, let me show you verse 39, because this is not what we expect either. Look at, look at what he says. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And then whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, so what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, if you, if you just pick up your cross, you accept you know, my plan for you, and, and then you surrender to my control, in losing what you want, you actually gain life. So it's paradoxical. You, you don't expect that. But what he's saying is this. He, he's, he's trying to communicate to us this, that with every death, there's a resurrection. That when you die to yourself, you experience life. And it's the strangest thing. You, you go up by giving up. And the more we try to grab onto our life and control things, the more frustrated and anxious and, you know, struggling we are. And uh, so he makes this promise, lose your life for me, you'll find it. Now, there's one more here that I just kind of want to highlight, and that is this, and I want to come back to it. I've kind of touched on it a little bit, but this is just the reality of the cost of following Jesus, and, um, and that's really what this entire chapter is about, that you make this decision to follow Jesus in this way, and some people are going to love you, and some people not so much. And it's, it's not you um, God's not asking us to be offensive just personally. Here's, here's what brings the division. The message of the cross brings the division. That thing right up there divides people more than anybody else. And what Jesus wants us to see is you just need to be aware of that. And you don't need to go flying in, you know, not being realistic about how people are going to react to the message of the cross because it divides. Can I, can, I show you a, can I show you an example of how the message of the cross divides? This is, you don't have to turn there, but let me show you 1 Corinthians uh, verses uh, 18 through uh, 23. I want to just show you how the impact of the message of the cross and what it does to people because it does some crazy things. Verse 18, he says this, the word of the cross, that is the message of Jesus dying and rising, is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you can't just know God through just trying to be book smart. Okay, that's what he's saying. It pleased God. It brought him joy and pleasure that through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Like it pleased God that people would go preach the cross and then, and then he would save them through the preaching of the cross. And then notice, notice the division here, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. Now, What's he saying? He's saying this, that the message of Jesus separates people into three different groups. One group is going to believe the message of the cross. They're going to believe that Jesus died for them, and they're going all in. 
But another group is going to stumble over the message of the cross. The message is proclaimed and they're going to trip over it and fall down. You know why? Because that group is trusting in their own righteousness to save themselves. They think, oh, I can, I'm good enough. I can save myself because I'm a good person. I don't need to put my faith in someone else. I can put my faith in me. And they trip over it. Because Jesus says, nothing else can save you except what I did for you. Then the last group is this. It's the group that just looks at the cross and just says, that's just folly. That's just foolishness. And they just joke about it. And, you know, as you're living on mission, you're going to run into all three. And you just need to be aware of that. That there's a cost. And it's really not you. It's Jesus that they have a problem with. Now, they may aim at you. Um, They may say bad things to you, but it's really him. And so what should our response be if someone stumbles over the message of the cross? What should our response be if somebody says, ah, that's just foolishness? Do you know what our response should be? should be love. Just praying for them. That's what it should be. And so, yeah, that's that's the cost. Let me me tell you a story and and then we're done. Lee Eklov is a pastor, and he tells the story of uh, Open Doors Ministry International. It is a ministry to uh, persecuted Christians all over the world. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, Christian persecution is at an all-time high. It's at an all-time high. You won't hear about it on the 6 o'clock news, uh, but, but Christians all over the world are being persecuted. And so Open Doors Ministry works with, with them. And um, they were doing a story on a Muslim convert in 2015. Uh, They called his name Bagus. That was not his real name. They changed his name for the story. But he became a Christian in 2015 and he became baptized. And and so um, they asked Bagus, why did you, you know, what led you to become a Christian? And he responded by saying, because my life was so troubled. And that was interesting for the interviewer. And the interviewer said, well, um, you know, when you, after you became a Christian, did your life stop being troubled? And he said, he said, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and then the interviewer said, well, uh, tell me what it is that you do. And Bagus said, well, I'm a trash collector. I, I go around picking up trash. And, uh, you know, the interviewer is kind of like, you know, just kind of skeptical a little bit about this kind of trouble-free life that Bagus was claiming. And, and so then he kind of asked a follow-up question. And, uh, and the follow-up question was this, um, how do you feel about being a Christian now after a few years of following Jesus? He said, I'm, I'm happy. I, I'm completely at peace. And, um, and then Bagus went on to tell the story of how indeed troubled his life had been. And he told the story of he's a church leader of a house church in a Muslim village somewhere. And he's a church leader in this house church of 15 converted Muslims. And someone in the village overheard Bagus sharing the gospel with another Muslim. And that person reported Bagus to the authorities. And so the authorities came when they were meeting as a house church and arrested them, pulled them out to a paddy field and said, if you don't renounce the faith right now, you're gonna die. And you know what Bagus did? 
he refused to renounce his faith. For whatever reason, they spared his life. They let him live. But you know what they did in punish, as a punishment? They separated Bagus from his, from his wife and from his kids. And according to the article, he can only see his family a couple times a year. And it's all because of his commitment to Christ. Now, why in the world would someone pay that price to follow Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. Because Jesus paid a greater price for them. Jesus took up the cross for them, for you, for Bagus, so that you could live. And he understands, church, what it's like to struggle with accepting God's plan because he struggled with it himself in Gethsemane. He understands what it's like to struggle surrendering to, you know, God's control because he didn't, he didn't want that that night before he was going to be crucified. And so what that means is there's grace available for you and for me as we navigate God's plan for us in the years that he has us on this life. And there are just times when we just got to pick up the cross and we got to follow him. But we know because he loves us that he's going to give us the help that we need and it's going to terminate in a great place, in a great place. And so that's our enablement. That's our hope. That's that's the grace that he has given to us. I just wonder, as we just kind of close today, I, I just want to ask you this question. Is there, is there something in your life that you've been resisting, but you need to just say, God, I'm accepting this now? Is there something in your life that you just need to surrender to God and say, you know what? I want you to be the center of my life. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. That is basic Christianity. That is Christianity 101. And so I want to invite you just to bow your heads and your hearts as we, as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we live in a country where we're really not faced with that kind of decision that, that Bagus had to make. But Lord, we just, we just want you to know we choose you. And Lord, we want to we follow you. And we will, we will love people no matter how they respond to us. But we want to love you more than anybody in our life. So God, would you, would you open our eyes to that? Would you give us grace for that? Would you give us faith for that? You are the author and the finisher of our faith. You, you are the way and the truth and the life. And so God, we ask that you would just, you would help us today to pick up the cross and follow you. We thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.